My first two voyages to New England. In the month of April 1614, with two ships from London of a few merchants, I happened to arrive in New England. Brave New World is a fantastic parable about the dehumanization of human beings. Man has been subordinated to his own inventions. Then the big political and economic question of the 21st century will be what do we need humans for? Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Do you have an answer in the book? Um, at present, the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games. The climate, climate issues and pollution issues are being exploited by, you know, the, the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and all of these uh, big, you know, mega billionaires, the same way that COVID was exploited, uh, to use it as an excuse to clamp down top-down totalitarian controls on society. And what we have in this country now is not free market capitalism, it's corporate crony capitalism. It's capital, it's cushy kind of socialism for the rich and a, a brutal barbaric, merciless capitalism for the poor. Science is not really about truth. It's about power. We'll follow the science. Let me say that again. We've got to follow the science. We can't talk about what you're talking about right now. What's going on? They're going to squash it because they're the biopharmaceutical complex. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me. Mr. Becker here. All aboard. Science is not really about truth. It's about power. Well, we're living in that technocracy indeed. That's not news to much of anybody. You know, it's it's unfortunate, but here we are. What is the answer? Well, I mean, it's a collective endeavor getting to that process. I mean, I'm not one single person that's going to be able to spell that out in one fell swoop, one shot, in one setting. Certainly not on a show like this with just one simple spat. I'm sorry. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. So are you having a great reset? Uh, did you have a great, a good, great recession? Not too many of us have, I mean, unless you're among the elites, and if you are, I'm surprised you'd bother tuning into a show like this. Pretty much everything I say you might find insulting in some way, which doesn't exactly bother me, if I'm honest with you. Now, I'm going to take a, a radical little shift here and get into some insights from a book entitled Work and Labor in Early America edited by Stephen Innes. That same author provides for us the first essay, and I thought it would be really helpful to actually examine some takeaways and relate it to our current situation, just so you could maybe see just how far of a difference this really is between John Smith's vision for the New World and the technocracy imposed by the demons at the WEF, the World Economic Forum, that wants you to own nothing and be happy. The uh, 
same World Economic Forum that has leaders within its apparatus that say humans aren't really useful anymore, except perhaps for playing video games and doing drugs. Now, how that actually makes us useful, I think maybe that's um, some real dark tongue-in-cheek stuff. So when John Smith surveyed the New World, he saw that it lacked the long labor and diligence of industrious people and art. That's a John Smithism. And that the trilogy of work, industry, and enterprise promised to transform it. He hoped it would be a haven for laborers, tradesmen, and small producers of Stuart England, the era that he was living in. Smith's passionate belief was that in the new world, every man may be master and owner of his own labor and land, or the greatest part in a small time. So Innes does a really good job of connecting the primary source he uses in certain passage by Bernard Balin here to stress the similarities in John Smith's vision to how the pre-revolutionary migration period actually played out. So there's two distinct groups to consider. One is metropolitan indentured young men from London and home countries to Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, places like those. Then the second group, provincial families from the Scottish Highlands, West Lowland, those textile centers surrounding it, and northern agricultural centers like Yorkshire, uh, they moved to places like North Carolina and New York. And here's an actual quote from it. At the beginning, John Smith's linkage of control of both one's land and one's labor was an attempt to speak to the aspirations of these latter groups. So that theme is stressed. Um, not only would Smith have envisioned the widely dispersed ownership of land and property, but also the ownership of your own labor. And as this essay goes on, we find that while the population within England increased, diminished returns in labor and capital investment were the result. Labor-land ratios increased while returns for labor had fallen, and John Smith recognized that in America, these ratios would actually be reversed. The earliest and greatest affront to Smith's vision was the institution of slavery, it was also the greatest source of unfree labor. Now, unfree labor took other forms. Unfree workers included indentured servants, convicts, vagrants, and war captives. And what Smith really wanted was a new world where all could receive the fruits of their labor. Now, what does it mean these days to even own your own labor? Because so rampantly we tend to outsource our labor to corporations because we feel it provides a lot of job security. We feel it's way too challenging to start our own businesses. And I think in the current environment, being as it may, perhaps that's true. Jack Trotter has a great speech at the Abbeville Institute called Who Owns America? It's based on a book called Who Owns America, same title, 
And it ought to be an awakening to anyone who thinks that the economy today is a natural outcome of honest dealings from the ground up. Ransom, who is generally in agreement with Coyle and Lanier, argues that the corporate revolution was founded upon what he calls a fertile assumption. He's speaking of the assumption that corporations are in the eyes of the law persons with all or many of the rights of private natural persons. Yet according to Ransom, corporations differ from natural persons in three significant ways. First, corporations under the law are permanent entities unlike natural persons, unlike you or me. Second, a corporation's responsibility is impersonal and the responsibility of its owners, shareholders, is limited by the corporate charter or by statute. By contrast, the responsibility of the private individual for his or her acts and debts is unlimited and extends to his estate. Thirdly, corporate management is, in practice, largely independent of its actual ownership. This whole idea that, you know, the economy is essentially this massive web of contracts directly resulting from the same exact principles as, hey, I have my orange, you have a dollar, I want your dollar, you want my orange, and there's the trade. Now, if we were to explain the corporate form and all that it entails, as that speech does, it might sound very foreign to one who's stuck in that view that this is all just an extension of a natural right to buy and sell, as I described, with no institutional shift between that and the corporate form. And yet we hear the free association and the freedom of contract arguments. But these arguments seem to assume little difference between a corporation with state privileges and largely artificial powers and a natural person who would be offering a position on fairly equal terms. The power dynamics wouldn't seem to reflect the Lockean notions of equality and authority. Not every outcome of the Industrial Revolution is to be embraced without some scrutiny or examination. A contract with a power center tied to your livelihood may more properly be viewed as a captain having the responsibility for keeping his passengers alive on his ship for the allotted time they've agreed to be on it. Now, a worker can walk out on a corporate entity when he doesn't like the terms, and often they do, but to that worker, I must say, good luck opting out of corporate arrangements altogether. It's a lot like that leave argument that ANCAPs love to laugh at. Where, Where would, would I, I go, go? Another status regime? So Michael Rechtenwald has an essay entitled What is the Great Reset? published on his website November 7th, year 2021, begins by essentially asking, you know, is this thing real? Is this just a hysterical gimmick by right-wing conspiracy theorists and extremists and so on and so forth? Are they just losing their minds? Are they paranoid about personal freedom and national sovereignty and so on and so forth? And, you know, can't they just sit down and take a little lockdown and you know when that's all over can't they just take the jab and move on and yeah according to the new york times and the anti-defamation league uh the great reset was essentially made up no basis in fact the bbc described it as 
benign effort by the leading thinkers of our time to bring about a fairer, greener future, so there's some concession there. Time Magazine, however, devoted an issue to the Great Reset, hailing it as the solution to our problems post-COVID. Mr. Manger Goes! So at the World Economic Forum's 2014 annual meeting in Davos, Chairman Klaus Schwab announced the forum's desire to, quote-unquote, push the reset button. Instead of a world caught in crisis management mode, Schwab envisioned a much more strategic way of approaching the known unknowns before them. You might recognize that term from um, Donald Rumsfeld. Klaus Schwab, however, ran with it himself. Now, in 2017, the World Economic Forum expanded upon this proverbial reset button and published an article on their website entitled, We Need to Reset the Global Operating System to Achieve the SDGs. Here's how. SDGs refer to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations that its member states unanimously agreed to with its deadline set for the year 2030. Now, why they agreed to these conditions? I mean, we could speculate, maybe just by virtue of it being the UN, it's not necessarily binding, but it's a nice uh, piece of symbolism. It's a nice signal to have. Anyway, this piece about upgrading and sustainable development goals characterizes those said goals as stretch targets, as it cited a study finding that 80% of the world's countries are off track in at least one among four targets for child mortality, maternal mortality, access to water, and access to sanitation. 37 countries are off track for all four. The stretch targets are stretchy indeed, but instead of revising the sustainable development goals to reflect achievable aims, the World Economic Forum's stock seems to be in this reset button. Now, quoting directly from the article, on many social and environmental issues, trends are actually moving in the wrong direction, write the authors. Incrementalism won't be enough to achieve a new generation's goals. A more fundamental rethink is required, one that can generate progress at exponential rates. We need a new operating system, an upgrade to the way modern capitalist economies are working. But why would the UN care about what a goofy man in Davos thinks of these results? Well, the paper is co-authored by John W. MacArthur, Senior Fellow of the UN Foundation. And with all those concerns mentioned is a pat on the back to the forward thinking of old. The paper asserts the greatest successes of the past generation have come from transforming rather than adding, proposing the answer to be found in unique blends of policies, institutions, financing, and public-private cooperation. Now, since June of 2019, the WEF and the UN have officially partnered to advance the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. As Michael Rechtenwald explains, the WEF promised to help finance the UN's climate change agenda. The framework also commits the WEF to helping the UN meet the needs of the fourth industrial revolution 
including providing assets and expertise to digital governance. Agenda 2030 appears to have been tailor-made to accommodate the UN-WEF partnership. It adopts the stakeholder concept introduced by Schwab decades before. The word stakeholders is used no less than 13 times in the 2030 resolution. The Great Reset, then, may be understood in part as the WEF's contribution to Agenda 2030. Now, in a matter of months following the COVID-19 outbreak, Klaus Schwab and Thierry Malloray published COVID-19, The Great Reset. The moment must be seized, declared the book. For those fortunate enough to find themselves in industries naturally resilient to the pandemic, the crisis was not only more bearable, but even a source of profitable opportunities at a time of distress for the majority. Well, the distressed majority is not their priority. And part of this rethinking and the vision of stakeholder capitalism is an adoption of the ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Index. It is a corporate social credit scoring system that enables further collective ownership by activist central planners. One major strategic partner of the WEF is BlackRock Inc., the world's largest asset management firm. In a 2022 letter entitled The Power of Capitalism, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink wrote a letter to all CEOs embracing this model, but denying its nature as a political agenda. It is capitalism, Fink declares. Fink, like Schwab, pontificates that COVID-19 changed everything. So he says, As companies rebuild themselves coming out of the pandemic, CEOs face a profoundly different paradigm than we're used to. That world is gone. Michael Rechtenwald advises readers to consider such statements as not only a report, but an implicit threat. Fink continues, As more and more investors choose to tilt their investments towards sustainability-focused companies, the tectonic shift we are seeing will accelerate further. And because this will have such a dramatic impact on how capital is allocated, every management team and board will need to consider how this will impact their company's stock. Great Reset has been described as capitalism with Chinese characteristics, which while a play on Maoism as socialism with Chinese characteristics, still aptly describes a powerful apparatus of state intervention and the social order imposed by profit-seeking corporations. Both promise more control over the population and greater economic consolidation. been another episode of the Austro Jeffersonian Empire of Liberty podcast. I'm Mr. Manger. Thanks again for listening.